For those who remain, I would invite you to join me in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in the 14th verse. Luke, chapter 4. So for uh, before I read Scripture, uh, the last three months I've had an issue with my right front tire. Uh, it wouldn't hold air. Every few days, the, the light would come on and let me know that my tire was deflated. And so I knew what that meant. Uh, it meant it was going bad. I went out and I looked at my tires. You know, you can take a penny and, and check them. And, and I did that, and they were all getting on in years. Uh, luckily, I had a friend uh, that had just abandoned North Carolina for Florida and had left me his, his uh, air compressor. And so I was able to top off my tire every three days and then pop it back up and inflate it. Now, my car has 256,000 miles on it. I'm not going to buy Pirellis, right? I'm not going to go out and buy nice tires for it. But those tires are, are the one thing that holds me and everyone else who rides in my car together. I mean, our life literally depends on those tires. So I, I knew I had to get something. So right after Christmas, I... Uh, I bought four new tires. I, I called the place at Wake Forest Tire and Muffler, and I said, I want the second cheapest tire that you feel comfortable selling me. And the guy hemmed and hawed. He got on his computer. He looked, and he found tires. I like them. I, I'm, I think they're attractive. The, the change, though, was immediate. Uh, where I, I, would, I, was, I was being very careful around stop signs and on wet roads, you know, very ginger with my acceleration. After I got new tires, I'm, I'm just peeling out and I'm, I'm flooring it. I mean, there, there's traction and there's grip. My confidence goes up. I start driving my 4,000-pound Honda Pilot hard into turns, accelerating off the apex with nothing but severe understeer and massive body roll. I have been living life and terrorizing the roads. It was last February. Last February, it seems like like a generation ago, was the last time we, we spent some time talking about our core values, who we are as a people, our, our vision and our core convictions. And, and we used back then the image of, of the center right in front of us at that time. You'll remember that we had our, our communion table right there and, and there was a, a, a cross and a, and a candle and an open book of scriptures. This was the, the centering image that, that grabs us and holds us together. Throughout the, the online services, we've tried to, to put those same images there in, in the service videos. And those, those images, they represent our vision, which is we as the people of Wake Forest Church of the Nazarene want to make Christ-like disciples in our neighborhoods. That is the core of who we are. That is our motivating principle. That is what drives us forward. But for us to go forward, you, you got to have some traction. And so around that core image, around that one vision statement, we have four key words, four core convictions that give traction to our life. Now, right now, I'm, I'm sure many of you feel like you're not going anywhere. It's, it's kind of where we all are. It, one of the ironic things in, in this year has been how we are all experiencing the exact same thing. But because of isolation and separation, we feel very alone in that experience. 
I had a meeting this week with pastors and we were all, though separated by space and context, feeling this isolation, this, this lack of traction. The speaker kept using at this, the speaker at this, this pastor's meeting kept using the language that we as a community, we as the world are in what he called the liminal space. It's a big fancy word he, he, he gave us. It means in between, it's the boundaries. We are in this time in between times in this transition period. And when you're in that liminal space and when you're in that in between times, it's hard to get traction with your life. You feel like you're, you're stuck. You feel like you're going backwards, except you want to go back further. You want to, you want to go back to the good old days, back to normal. The problem, the speaker said, is that we can never go back. We can only go forward. And to go forward, we have to have something, a good set of tires. And so for the next four weeks, what I want us to think about together is our four core values, our four core convictions, these things that, that, that hold on to the center but propel us forward. In our church, we have four words that represent those convictions. We as a people, we worship, we welcome, we walk, and we witness. Together, we as a church created these, and we've set these convictions up as a ruler by which we measure our success and our failures. These are the things that push us forward in life and give us traction. We hear today from Luke chapter 4, 14th verse. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus, filled with power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendants and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say these this to them. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? And then he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things you have, we have heard you did in Capernaum. And he said to them, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except the widow of Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. 
they got up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went on his way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It wasn't that long ago that we read this very same passage that Jesus did in our own worship service. Separated by time and culture and language, we we gathered around the same book, the same scroll that was handed to Jesus. It was December 12th, actually. And in that service, as we read from the prophet Isaiah, we talked about in pretty good detail all of the, the promise and problem of Jubilee. This celebration when the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed and debts are forgiven and prisoners are released and land is returned. And it was great news for the landless and the prisoners and the debtors. But it wasn't so much good news for those who were rich and powerful. The guards and the mortgage brokers and the lenders. For them, Jubilee was a a problem. Today in Luke's story, He tells us of Jesus preaching from this same passage. Jesus exposes a slightly different problem. For after Jesus reads these words from the powerful text that sparks hope and electrifies the imagination, he sits down and before all of their ears he says, these words are fulfilled in your presence. Jubilee has come. This is happening now. And everyone starts losing their minds. They cannot believe that that Joseph's boy is bringing them this message. Hope is electrifying them, and they are besides themselves. The beauty and eloquence of his words. And then Jesus keeps talking. I had the the privilege one time of teaching a preaching course. I know it was the blind leading the blind. But but I think my second rule that I ever told those students was, the one thing you have to do is when you get the audience, when the congregation is in the palm of your hands, you got to stop talking. No matter what you do, once you get them there, you stop talking. Jesus keeps going. He, He keeps sermonizing. He tells them a couple of stories that they would have known. The the doctor heal thyself was a very common proverb spoken about. The stories of Elijah and Elisha going outside of Israel to bring healing and hope would have been told to everyone since their days in early Sabbath school. There were no surprises in the content. It was the context that messed everyone else. Jesus says, today Jubilee is happening but it's not happening for you it's for them those and everyone loses their minds but for very different reasons now that they rush at jesus not to put him on a throne or to to congratulate him on a sermon well preached but to throw him off a cliff now i've preached some bad sermons and i've preached some sermons that have gotten people mad but I don't think I've ever gotten people that mad. They wanted to throw me off a cliff. Jesus says something that people didn't want to hear. He, 
He preaches the gospel. He leads them into worship. And the people don't like it. Today we're talking about worship. This moment, this event that happens when when we as the people of God gather in his presence. And it happens when we are in the presence of God. When we are confronted by the gospel, there is this event, this thing that is subversive. It undercuts who we are. When we worship the living God, our expectations are undone. The living word of heaven comes to us and confronts us with all sorts of things that we would rather not hear. It it tells us who is in and who is out. Who is included and who is excluded. And we have a problem with that. When we in Wake Forest, we talk about worship, we use these words. We understand worship as experiencing God by intentional participation in God's work in our community, both in our actions and in our attitudes. When we as a people, we wrote that a few years ago, we had no idea that we would be in this place right now. But I think it shows the depth of wisdom and the resounding truth in those words. That there is nothing in our conviction about worship about where worship happens, other than it happens within our community. Worship is not bound by time and space, by location and walls. Worship happens whenever we interact with the Holy Presence, with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our actions, in our attitudes, in our, in our minds, in our bodies, in our souls. There is nothing in our conviction about what songs we sing, what clothes we wear, our emotional or even our spiritual states. I would have loved when we were drafting this conviction to to go further. I would have much preferred if we had enunciated our our preference and our conviction about doctrinal purity or or allowing us to say that we are only going to worship in in something that conforms with my aesthetic sensibilities. You know, we could have added a little subnote about how we should only sing in Latin the way God speaks. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritus Sancto. That's some plain song chant thrown in there. But we didn't. The church together is wiser than the pastor by himself. When we experience God by participating intentionally in what God is doing, that experience comes to us And it starts to be subversive. It starts to undo us and undercuts us. It causes our worlds to expand and our walls to collapse. It calls into question the place we're living. Worship is a disruptive thing. I think Annie Dillard has one of the best descriptions to paraphrase. She says, we make this grave mistake when we show up to church with with our funny, our, our frilly little hats and our nice suits. What we should do is wear flak jackets and, and bomber helmets. Because if the holy God that we call upon actually shows up, the roof would get torn off. Now, that's not so much a problem in our current setting. This disruptive moment of worship, it starts not just with our buildings and our community, but it starts within us. In Romans 12, Paul likens worship to being a living sacrifice. 
we are, all of us here and, and online, those who are gathered together in spirit, we are holistic creatures. We are soul and spirit and mind and emotion and body. And when we come into the presence of the living God, we bring all of that with us. There is no dichotomy between our spirit and our emotions and our bodies. And in this spectrum, some of us lean certain ways. Some of us are more emotionally centered and we bring God our emotions and we worship with Him. Some of us are, are more uh, mind-focused. We, we, we live there in our intellect and we worship God in that ways. And so we need to be generous in accepting those who, who are more emotional, those who are more intellectual. I don't want to say intellectual because that sounds bad, but you know, so, so people who are more mind-focused or people who are more heart-focused. God calls us to bring our whole selves, both our actions and our attitudes. Karl Barth links, links the, this spiritual and physical worship in Romans with the notion of sanctification as as Raymond already talked about today. In a sacrifice, what you do is you, you set aside your gift, your offering, your animal to be completely used by God. That, that's what we do when, when we ask God to do for us and when we present our lives before God's sanctifying grace. We say, God, I am yours. Come and fill me and use me. Do with me as you would choose. That's a position, a posture that God is calling us to have in worship. We are to sacrifice, to, to set apart this time, this energy, this purpose. We give ourselves completely over to God. In a world and in a society that demands that you squeeze productivity out of every moment, we say that what we're going to do is we're going to set aside this time. We're going to sanctify this time, we're going to sacrifice it for nothing else other than the worship of God. The other thing that we do, other than sacrificing and sanctifying this, this effort and this activity, when we worship God, we give over control. Back in the day, you would, you would present your sacrifice on the altar and you would hope that God would accept it. Many of us know the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, the very first children, Adam and Eve's children, that Cain and Abel. Cain is the, the, the farmer. Abel is the shepherd. And they both bring their offerings to God, but God accepts only one. And so too, when we gather for worship, we do a, a lot of planning beforehand. We, we have teams and set up and, and we think through things. We, our, our song leaders prepare and, and our graphic artists, they, they work. And we all spend time getting ready for worship. We pray and we plan and we study and we talk and we discuss and we practice. And then we come together and we do this thing. But once we actually engage, once we kind of start with the, the worship service, it's it's... It's outside of our control. It's outdone in the hope that, that God will take it. That God will find this thing we do acceptable. That God will show up and do something. The same is true for your life. You can be a Christian and, and still hold back pieces of your life. But there comes a point where God comes and, 
and confronts us and says, I want all of you. And in that moment, we are invited, we are called to hand over control, to say, no matter what you want of me, no matter where you send me, no matter what you ask, I will do it because I am entirely yours. I am a living sacrifice, completely dedicated. That is the subversive heart of our spiritual worship. When we accomplish with our actions and our attitudes. That's what we do in worship. Scripture also teaches us that God is not bound by our efforts. God is not contained in houses made of human hands. God is wild and free out in our community, both in the community that we form when we gather and in the community out there. You know, worship doesn't stop at 1059. Worship doesn't stop when you leave this parking lot or turn off the computer or go to lunch. Worship doesn't stop when you climb into bed trying to remember what meetings you have in the morning. Worship doesn't stop because God's kingdom doesn't stop. Worship doesn't stop because there are seraphim continually surrounding the holy throne of God, calling out holy, holy, holy. And whenever we pause to lift up our voices or raise our hands in praise and adoration, we join with that heavenly host. We know that our worship spills out. It overflows. It rushes forth. Because we join with God and what God is already doing. In Wake Forest Church of the Nazarene, we worship. We experience God by intentionally participating in God's work in our community, both in our actions and our attitudes. This is how we get traction in life. This is what propels us forward by joining with what God is doing, by partnering with Christ's subversive, disruptive work. And when we do that, jubilee happens. The blind receive their sight. The lame begin to leap. The poor have good news preached for them. And the Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon all of us. Thanks be to God for our work of worship. Pray today. And now, O oh Lord, as we worship you in this final song, as we worship you in this day of rest, as we worship you in this week of labor ahead, may you receive our worship and may this core conviction move us forward, shape our life. This we ask in the holy and precious name of Jesus, our Savior.